I was inspired by by <clears throat> being at the March retreat with a number of people, uh, some of whom were doing the second month of a two-month retreat, and some of whom were doing one-month retreat. And I was part of the team with Sylvia and with uh, Heather Sundberg, John Travis, uh, Mary Grace Orr, Larry Yang, Conda Mason, and was very inspired by being there and the dedication that people showed. And in part, wanted to talk about the, the kind of journey that we take when we embark on a spiritual practice. And I wanted to do that really in three ways. I wanted to use a beautiful poem uh, by Mary Oliver, which you have a copy of, called The Journey. And if you don't have a copy, I think there's some, Carrie, are there some on the back table? Right there. there. Or the right, right up here. So maybe, um, yeah, one, if you need, one, need a copy, you can come right up here. They're right to my, to my left. So I wanted to use one reference point, this beautiful poem, and I'll read it in a moment, uh, to look at that sense of our own spiritual journey. And then secondly, wanted to use um, our own lives as a reference point. How do we go on a journey? What, what are the elements of that journey? What are the elements of that spiritual path? And then thirdly, have some reference to the life of the historical Buddha. And here I was, I was inspired by a talk that Larry Yang gave, which is also on Dharma Seed, which was a quite beautiful talk on the archetypal stages of the Buddha's life. And so I, I would refer you also to that, that talk. So I want to refer to the poem, to our own lives, and to the life of the Buddha in trying to point to some of the basic um, phases of our practice. And many of you know that actual life story of the Buddha. I'll go into a little more detail uh, during the talk, but many of you know the life story that the Buddha was uh, raised as a prince, was raised in luxury in northern India, in, a, in the area that's now uh, part of Nepal, was um, greeted at his birth with a prophecy that he would either be a great king or a great spiritual figure. His parents were quite invested with the first taking place. <laughs> And so they kept him in privilege and in protection and thought that if they totally sheltered him and he had no exposure to the life's, to life's problems, life's ills, he would probably want to become a king. Yeah. And, and so you know that at a certain point he was awakened, and I'll say more about this later, he, on, when he was 29, he was awakened to the realities of suffering and of death and so forth. And there was a great calling that arose in him to leave his protected life and go out in search, really, of spiritual truth. And that he took six years working with the most illustrious teachers of his time and ultimately finding all of their teachings not quite what he was looking for. 
finally going on his own pursuit, which led to him at a certain point sitting under the famous uh, Bodhi tree, which is a kind of fig tree, where he made a resolve to sit until he reached full awakening and reported that 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 did occur, that there was a tremendous, powerful, really uh, world-shattering awakening in his own being. That's of course, has had a tremendous effect on so many people in the world and that he then returned ultimately to the world to teach. And there was that, that trajectory. So I want to use that as a reference point. So first I'll read this poem. And I think I'll also read it at the end. And you can, maybe my suggestion is, you have a copy of it, but my suggestion is that you listen to it rather than read along. So that really, so that uh, in a way, uh, different parts of ourselves are activated. Sometimes when we read, it's just more the verbal and mental parts of ourselves. This is by Mary Oliver, The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop, you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So this image of a journey or this model of a journey is um, a powerful one, you know, and it's very closely connected with the, really the uh, metaphor, the image that structures the Buddhist teachings, which is that of a path, you know, and it's a sense of walking in a certain direction, you know, and until very recently, that was how people did journeys. You know, we could admire the birds and the, the fish, but pe- people mostly walked. And the very word for path in the um, Pali and Sanskrit, some of you know that the text um, uh, uh, Dhammapada, and the word is, is uh, P-A-D-A for steps, really, and it really it's connected with the word for path, and it has to do with the foot, same root. Indo-European language, same room that we have for uh, um, a podiatrist, right? Or someone who works with feet, or what, you know, there are a lot of words have the same roots in, in uh, Western languages also, same, same root. And there's that sense that we, we walk on a path, and what characterizes a path is that something has been cleared out so that we don't 
uh, walk into things. That there is a way that we can walk. There's a certain clarity about walking. But a lot of times when we begin a journey, it actually doesn't even have necessarily the nature of a path. It's really just a journey that we are taking that we don't always know where we're going. One of the beautiful aspects of a spiritual path is that there's some pointing to where we're going. A lot of times when we begin on our own journeys, we don't have that sense of um, knowing where we're going. You know, and a lot of times we take journeys really uh, very much into the unknown. You know, they're changing situations and we may take, we may travel a long way and come in some sense to something deeper in ourselves. So here in the, in the poem, there's, there's a sense of the journey as being related in some ways to what we might call um, knowing what one has to do, knowing one's vocation, hearing a calling. There's something about this. The poem begins, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. And that comes in very much throughout the poem. There's a sense that we need to listen and ultimately we need to hear our authentic voice. And there's something very powerful about our practice that we really are invited to listen for what's authentic and to listen more and more so that we know what to do. And in some sense, everyone here has heard some voice or has had some calling to practice. There's some sense of being called to a life of awakening. Everyone's had that. You know, you can, you can really uh, ask yourself, when did that occur for you? When did you know what you wanted to do? When did you know what was deep for you? When did you know what was important? You know, um, what awakened you? In your childhood, there must have been times for all of us when something awakened us. You know, I know for myself, I was reflecting that um, maybe a little bit like the story of the Buddha, being raised in a protected environment. And then, I think at age four or five, maybe it was going to kindergarten. And the people in first and second grade seemed so cruel <laughs> to the poor people in kindergarten. And something really struck me, like, what is this? What is cruelty? Why is that there? What's, what are the roots of that? And it was very, you know, as a four or five-year-old coming into that, maybe you had similar experiences, maybe at a younger age. You know, what is this? You know, I know that that was, that was very strong and it, it, you know, it also came later, you know, as a child, really seeing at times particularly uh, cruelty or meanness, or betrayal. You know, it, it was, all of those experiences had a big impact, as I'm sure that you've had similar experiences. And it made me want to know what is, you know, what is, um, 
what is care, what is love, what is, what, how can we live without that? You know, I, it wasn't, of course, articulate at that age, but there was something that really struck me, you know. And I know later it was also uh, some very similar experiences, just uh, being confused. You know, I grew up in uh, Maryland at a place where we had, um, it was a little bit like a southern town. I lived in a town. It had a railroad tracks going through the center of town. On one side of the tracks were poor whites recently from Appalachia. On the other side were poor blacks. And then on the other side, beyond both of them, there were the increasing suburbs, you know, where there, were, there, was, there was actually a town and then there was a suburb. So, and it was, for me, it was also very kind of shocking to get to sometimes spend time in the black area and have friends and, you know, go to school with them and really say, what is this? What are these divisions? What is this about? It's very, um, you know, it's very shocking in a way for a young child to get brought into that. And it really led to some wanting to know more. So what were your, what were your awakenings? What were your, what woke you up that to something that was important for you? You know, as a child, maybe as a 20-year-old, and so, and so forth. So there's this initial, often this initial calling, and actually it doesn't happen once, it happens many, many times. We get called maybe to something deeper in our lives. What is that? You know, and we may get called by experiences like I mentioned. We may get called in mid-age by an illness or by, you know, um, like Joseph Campbell once said, we've climbed the ladder and we're at the top of the ladder in mid-age, but we found out it was the wrong ladder. <laughs> That's called mid-age crisis or midlife crisis, right? You know, so what, what called you to something more? All of you were here because something called you. What is that? This is from uh, Carl Jung. True personality always has vocation. And interesting, if you listen, the very word vocation relates to hearing a voice, hearing, having a calling, you know. It's the vocal. True personality always has vocation, which acts like the law of God from which there is no escape. Who has vocation hears the voice of the inner person and is called. The greatness and the liberating effect of all genuine personality consists in this. It subjects itself a free choice to its vocation. So we hear, you know, we hear um, the voice, you know, and, and yet we don't always uh, just simply go right there. You know, we, we actually hear that calling many, many times and we listen some and we don't listen some. And then the poem goes on to say one of the reasons why we don't listen so much. There are other voices <laughs> other than the voices of calling. The voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. You know? I sometimes think of meditation practice as listening to bad advice over and over again. <laughs> listening to our own minds repeat bad advice over and over again until we know better. You know? And so these are, you know, these are 
our own voices repeating bad advice. These are the internalized voices of the culture. These are the internalized voices of our family, you know. And of course, not everything from the culture of the family is bad advice. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that, but really part of, um, part of the spiritual journey is becoming really familiar with the bad advice, basically with our conditioning, with our habitual conditioning, and deciding to move beyond it, which is a struggle, right? It's a difficult thing. So all of us, when we meditate, we look more deeply at what our conditioning is. That's a lot of what we do in practice. We, we just sit and we notice our minds and we, we have beautiful states, of course. We can have states of peace and relaxation and concentration. But a lot of it is just simply seeing all the patterns of the mind over and over again. Call it the bad advice repeated or the habitual patterns. And it's, it's challenging, you know. And how do you keep connected to your authentic voice when the other voices are there? And so part of our practice is sorting that out. And sometimes there's a struggle, there are ups and downs. It's not easy, right? We really uh, work with that. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, you know, and sometimes even, I mean, you can think of the house as a metaphor for the body. You know, the body is trembling, you know. And you go back to the life of the Buddha. He was protected, but when he began to have a sense of his vocation, you know, which came about really when he came in contact with suffering. He was protected, but it's said that his charioteer on four successive nights, let him out beyond the boundaries of the palace. We might say beyond the boundaries of his habitual conditioning. And on four successive nights, the first night he saw an old person. He said, what is this? He had been protected from all signs of uh, old age, of death, of suffering. The second night he saw a person who was sick. The third night he saw a corpse. The fourth night he saw a mendicant or someone who was devoted to the spiritual path. And he, something very strong in him, called him to find out the truth that lies beyond suffering and death. And yet there was vacillation. He wasn't sure. He was married. He had a young child. What should he do? When you read the text, you'll find him actually really uh, not sure what to do. It's said in the text that the devas or the angelic forces kept shouting their advice to him, which is that go out, you know, go out into the, go out on your search. You must do this for the sake of the many, you know. And he said, no, I've got a family. I can't leave my family, you know. And he was, it was actually, um, it's not some pat story. There's inner struggle. And we all have that, you know, with our own sense of what should I do? You know? And we, you know, again, our, our stories may be a little bit different. We may feel called to look more deeply because of coming in contact with suffering or injustice or our own illness or someone else's illness, you know. And it can be very difficult, though the whole house began to tremble. I think it's a metaphor for the body. 
sometimes, you know, when we are on our own journey, there's so much uncertainty, it can really um, affect us. You know, I think of people I know who are really trying to really sincerely walk their, their own journey. And there are times when they are confused, when their bodies are in torment, that it seems to be, be part of the journey. It happens like that sometimes. You know, the inner, when one tries to be with the inner forces, it's difficult sometimes on a bodily level, on an emotional level. It's not just some nice story of, oh, I heard about Spirit Rock, I came to meditate, things worked out well. <laughs> we don't put this exactly in our promotional literature. <laughs> you know, we should say, once you come to Spirit Rock, be prepared for a difficult journey, right? We don't, we don't say that for our retreats. Maybe we should have better truth in advertising. But you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. And very interesting that when you are seeking your own truth, your own vocation, following your own vocation, there will be people close to you who say, if you follow your own vocation, I will be hurt. It's difficult. It's not an easy situation. There will be people who will interpret your following your own voice, your own calling, as their loss. And I was thinking of a very pivotal time about 12 years ago when I was moving away from um, being involved more in graduate school teaching and starting a period of a lot more uh, retreat and practice. And I had been uh, editor of a, <coughs> uh, a journal called Revision, or co-editor, for about 10 years. And I was leaving the, uh, for a time, I was leaving our faculty. And people in the faculty said, don't go. We need you. You know, I was going on leave for a year, and I actually ended up doing about four months of retreat during that, that year. And they said, don't go. We need you. We'll fall apart without you. And the same thing, the person at the journal, the managing editor said, you hold everything together. Without you, it will fall apart, you know. And um, a little bit of truth to that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it actually done, did fine. And, but, but, it's, but it's interesting. Men my vo- life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. So there's this sense of, um, it's not easy actually. That describes a difficult process. You know, that when we, there's a part of when we engage on our own path, follow our own voice, follow our own vocation, that there are a lot of ups and downs, you know, whether it's in our interpersonal relations, their melancholy was terrible, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundation of the house, you know, there, it is not easy. There is suffering, as I mentioned, people engage on a spiritual path and it's challenging, it's challenging in all sorts of ways, it's challenging emotionally, it's challenging of knowing who am I if I'm leaving, if I'm leaving my habitual conditioning. Who am I? What do I awaken to? You know? It's not easy. 
you know, and this whole path that's being practiced here says that when we follow that vocation, the journey in part takes us through suffering. We have to be willing to open to suffering to do this path. It says that to go beyond suffering, we need to be able to open to suffering. It doesn't say suffering is the end. You know, it says that actually we can work through suffering to an amazing degree. Suffering being the, the um, reactivity in the mind, the, the, uh, not so much the unpleasant experiences, but the reactions to, to it, the, the teaching of the second arrow that, that I often give, the, not the original unpleasant experience, but the ways that we react in our bodies, in our emotions, in our minds, that there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of difficulty, there's unpleasant experiences. It's like Jack Kornfield was told when he first became a monk by his teacher Achen Cha. He said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Do you remember that story? Some of you have heard that. And Jack said, what? <laughs> I'm here for bliss. <laughs> you know. A little, a little bit drug-influenced at, at the time. <laughs> uh, I'm here for bliss and wonder. And, and, he says, and he says, if you're here, you have to be willing to open up to suffering. There are two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to further suffering, and there's suffering that leads beyond suffering. And on this journey, there are the stiff fingers poking at us. There's the melancholy of others. There's the mend my life. There is the road full of fallen branches and stones. It's not pretty at times. Again, I think we know this from ourselves. There are ups and downs. There are dark nights of the soul. There are difficulties. We have to be able to be with those. And of course, having community, having teachers, having friends is tremendously important. You know? So there's this, there's this phase, really, which, again, it's sometimes it's a phase that goes on for a period of time. Sometimes it's something we find from time to time. There's a phase in which there's more difficulty or struggle or suffering or the dark night of the soul. That's there sometimes. It's a necessary part of the path. To confront one's own conditioning requires that. We don't work through our own habitual conditioning without challenge, without difficulty. In fact, without quite a lot. And so we know that the Buddha, when he was on his search, had a great deal of suffering. You know? Again, we may have this image of everything just going right to awakening, but if you read the text, he had his moments of doubt, he had questions, he had periods of fairly intense fear, he nearly died, he did ascetic practices that left him extremely weak. You know? He um, had... Question, he had questions about the teachings he was going through. There was a lot, there was a lot of difficulty. He wasn't any, you know, he spent six years single-mindedly focused on this path and practice. And it took a lot, a lot of, you can imagine that there were tremendous ups and downs, doubts, fears, challenges, you know. And I, so again, we, I think that's necessarily part of what we encounter when you think of the, um, you know, the mythological counterpart of what we're talking about, sort of the mythological journey of the great 
um, the great figures who battled demons, right, or battled dragons in the you know, in the old stories in, in, in all in all cultures. There are stories of these uh, culture heroes or heroines who who faced these amazing challenges. You know, I was thinking of um, um, Sultramalioni, who's a um, American-born teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, and one of her pivotal journeys occurred when her child died very, very young. And she went into a very intense, kind of very dark and difficult period for about five years, I believe. And it was really pivotal for her own learning. That happens. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn The stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. There's some coming to the authentic voice. As we stay with this, and I, I know we all know this, that as we stay with this process, something deeper and more authentic comes more into our lives. You know, Something like our authentic voice. You know, I, I can remember, there's a really interesting experience I had when I was first starting to do retreats. And I was at um, IMS uh, in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, and there was a um, very pivotal experience where I was doing walking meditation and I started to feel fear towards some of the people next to me. And I didn't know why I was feeling fear. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember just stopping right at that place where there was, um, where people were doing the walking meditation. It was actually, at that time, it was right next to a bowling alley because the retreat center had been an old, um, uh, really, monastery, actually, a Catholic monastery, and the the monks had built themselves a bowling alley. (laughs) It was right, it was always nice to kind of, to go to the dormitories, you had to walk through the bowling alley place. Anyway, anyway, I was doing walking meditation, and I remember just stopping and saying, I'm just going to stand here and ask, what is this? Why, why am I afraid? And I didn't know, and I just stood there. And it took a while, but I got an answer, which was that I'm thinking these people are really powerful, and I'm scared of their power. Actually, it was the answer I got. And the answer was interesting in itself, but what was more uh, impactful was that I got a really honest answer. I asked the question, and it was the first time I had done something like that, I think, where I'd asked myself a deep question. It wasn't public. It was just, as it were, in the privacy of my own consciousness. And, you know, there wasn't really any reason for self-image to fool myself. And so something like what the Quakers called the still small voice appeared, was heard, you know. And it was, I I imagine that all of us have had experiences something like that, where some honest voice came. And I I used to call it, because I I really got interested in it, and I would start doing when I was in a social situation and feel a little uncomfortable, I would say, okay, what's happening? And I would access that voice, and I would do it more and more, you know. And it was really, it was not 100%, but close to it, in terms of truth. I would call it my no-bullshit voice. 
you know, because and it was something. It was it was really uh, pivotal. You know, of course, one can train to access that, but it's that voice of authenticity that gets called forth by our practice. You know, because we've learned to distinguish the bad advice from the good advice. We've learned to listen to all the voices and know which of those internal voices are good for us. What should I follow? What should I trust? You know, we can know that on all sorts of levels. You know? And the, I think one of the powers of our practice is that we can call it this intuitive, powerful voice gets stronger. You know? It's an intuition about what's right, you know, whether it's what's right ethically, what's right in terms of personal choice, about a situation, I found something like that gets activated. How many people can relate to that as connect with your practice? That some kind of deep, authentic voice gets activated. So this is what Mary Oliver is talking about. Little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. So it's, it's really the coming into being of one's own voice, one's own authenticity, you know, one's own awakening, if you want to call it that. It's the Buddha coming to his own awakening at the end of this six-year process. And it's interesting that he only really came to the awakening when he moved outside of existing systems and, in a sense, trusted his own fate. Because all of what this is about is trusting your own fate or destiny. It's being your own hero or shiro or heroine or whatever we want to call it. That, <laughs> um, and it brings, it brings a kind of archetypal quality to our lives because we're, we're asked to be this completely unique uh, blossoming of a flower that's never existed before. You know, and there are those, there are those energies in us that are inviting us to, to keep awakening and to find our own unique gifts, our own unique vocation. Yeah. There's that uh, beautiful saying by Howard Thurman that I love very much, uh, where he, uh, Howard Thurman, an African-American uh, theologian and activist uh, who lived the last part of his life in the San Francisco area and set up, I think, the first interracial church in the Bay Area in the 40s and 50s. And near the end of his life, uh, when he was probably in his 70s or so, he was asked by a young man, what should I do? And he was an activist, and you might expect the activist to say, okay, do this, do that, you know. That movement really needs people. And his answer was, uh, don't do what the world needs. Rather, do what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That sense of inviting that, that deeper vocation. There was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. And so there's this sense of as we find that inner clarity, you know, as we do this practice, as we um, have this sometimes very powerful and intense inner transformation, there's also a movement that's outward into the world. And in many times they're, they're synonymous. We often find ourselves with others. 
You know, we find ourselves in our work, in our vocation, in our service, in our caring, and so forth. There was a new voice which you solely recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Deeper and deeper into the self, deeper and deeper into the world. It's really actually a beautiful image. For me, it's very much like the image of the bodhisattva, or the one who goes deeply, deeply into one's own vocation, and that this is often about liberating the gifts and the perspectives that bring one in relation with others, into one's work, one's, again, one's service, and so forth. So I think we each have this, something like this journey occurring right now. We're right in the midst of the journey, you know, and we can ask ourselves, how do I open to these different parts of the journey, to the sense of calling, to the sense of listening to the voices that, and following them? I always remember in the Buddhist tradition it said, one, you know, like that first line, one day you finally knew what you had to do. Often spiritual maturity is, is framed by the words, that person did what he or she had to do. In the ancient text, they use that language. There's almost a sense of uh, personal and archetypal destiny you know, that we, that we um, embrace, really. You know? So there's the, the calling, li- the listening to that, the voices, and beginning to shift one's life away from the habitual conditioning. But in doing so, the challenges of that. Mend my life. Bad advice. You know, and coming up against the conditioning, coming up against a certain amount of suffering staying with that and going through that process. For the Buddha, it was coming to awakening. You know, for us, it's awakening further. It's awakening that voice you know, that's in the poem, that new voice. And then as we do that more and more fully, we more and more fully take our place in the world. Let me end just by reading the poem one more time. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundation, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and a road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Let's sit in silence for a moment and then we can talk together.
we have some time to talk together about anything that might have been uh, sparked. Thank you, Mary Oliver. <laughs> Thank you, Buddha. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Thank you, Don. Um, this was so well timed. Mm. I just um, I have a quote that I carry around that's very relevant um, from Anais Nin. And the day came when the risk it took to remain tight inside the bud was greater than the risk it took to blossom. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Everyone here that uh, there came a time when for the, was it for the bud the when the risk it took to remain tight inside the bud yeah was greater than the risk it took to blossom yeah yeah everyone here okay. yeah thank you it's beautiful yeah Mark please this is not too deep but I was on retreat with you in December and <laughs> yeah. And I love Dharma talks being with you. And then I went on, I was on retreat this last week. Yeah. And it, it, the answer sort of came to me. Yeah. What is my journey? Why do I practice? Yeah. Regardless of what else is out there. And I told um, uh, Stahl. Yeah, Bob Stahl. And I just, because they rolled around in the room, you know, and they said, everyone's got their questions. I said, no, I think I really kind of know why this path is part of what I need to do. And it resonates like what you're talking about. Yeah. We have our calling. That's why we're here. Yeah. Um, but it, at least the answers came. I think I know why I need to do this for me. And yeah. It's, they're all individual journeys, as yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And it was a, it was a moment of clarity. Yeah. And I was thinking of you, Donald, because I know I was telling you I was going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's... Um, some of it's just um, staying with it, really, you know. And and there are these moments which are unbidden, you know, moments of insight which are unbidden. You can't force it, and it is very, very personal, you know. And there are ways that um, you know it may not look uh, like one particular form that's presented. You know, you may make use of. Uh, Mindfulness meditation and really be into contemplative and ecstatic dance or social justice work, you know, and it, it's really, uh, or be particularly finding your service in your work with people as a doctor or nurse or therapist or whatever. And so it's very, very personal, you know, and I think there's a way that, uh, uh, yeah, but so, so, sounds like it was a very important moment. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's great. <laughs> I'd like to hear more. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, it's fairly interesting that um, you use the word vocation, because I think that sometimes the, wa- the authentic voice or yeah. the wise mind is not always verbal in your head. Like yeah. It's like you're leaving behind the voices and you're coming to something even yeah. more essential in yourself that's not 
verbal that's, yeah. I don't know, like a sense, a kinesthetic, a, a whole self. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, it's, um, like I said, the question is, is about the uh, uh, way in which uh, sometimes there's a clear voice, but sometimes as we find our own vocation, so to speak, it may be a felt body sense or it may be not very clear at times and it's more something, could be something intuitive. Um, it's, I think that's a really important point. I, I, was, I was reflecting on how um, you know, one important period, it was that period I mentioned about 12 years ago, where I knew I had to change in some ways. I had been, in my mind, too busy. I mean, it was all so-called good stuff. And, but that something deeper of a more inner nature wanted to come out. And, I, could, and I, you know, I had a pretty good sense of where it would go intellectually, but it wasn't really in my guts. And I, what I had to do was actually leave a lot of open space and time for it to emerge. It's a point I didn't make in the talk, but sometimes we may have a sense of that voice or that calling or even uh, you know, where, what draws us but if we're really, really busy, it's sometimes hard for that to mature. And there's a really important place for having open time and unscheduled time. And that's not always easy itself. You know, that year, I, uh, I only worked, uh, I worked it out economically. It's privilege, so I could work the first five days of each month and make enough money for the month. You know, I would that I could cut, you know, make that into a product and <laughs> offer it to you. <laughs> You know, but it was, it, I was able to do that, and, and then for four months I was on retreat. I didn't do that at all, so it was kind of like eight months of the year, five days of work. It wasn't, um, wasn't that much. I had some savings also. So. But, um, but I actually had very, very little structure in that time, you know, which again is a privilege to do that. Some of us don't have that choice. But, there was, but to set that structure, and sometimes it was scary because I didn't know where I was going or what I would do, but I, I had this sense, I think there's a really important part of learning, that sometimes for what's new or what needs to come into our lives in a more powerful way, we need to give it space and time. Not to, if one's too busy, it's sometimes quite hard for that to happen. You know, and so that's, and, and that, and maybe that intuition which invites that, and we actually, you know, a lot of that time, if you ask me what's happening, I'm said I'm not sure, right? I'm really not sure what's going on. I had some intuition it was the right way to go, to have that unstructured time. And then a lot of it, I mean, of course, retreats are very much like this. They're, in a certain sense, structured, but in a certain sense, it's just open time, you know, and open space. So that's, a, that's an important principle also. So, yeah, a lot of the times it's not like, okay, here's my path, I know what to do, take steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, new voice, awakening, okay. <laughs> <laughs> End of story. It's not like that. Uh, please, yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, I have felt very connected to the poem, kind of on a literal level at this point in my life. So, duh, you know, the symbolic was very helpful to hear again. But I, I also, I think, very similar to what you just said is that at my age, you know, it's not just one awakening yeah. or many awakening or moments of yeah. that, that, that this one now is different than the one yeah. 
that that <coughs> happened in some ways was more forced on me by my husband's death when I was much younger, and 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 then I lived my life, and now I'm choosing it in a way which yeah. God knows I prefer to choose than have it descend on you, but mm. but but I, I'm recognizing it as more similar than I had thought before. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, interesting that, yeah, yeah, that some of the, the, it's interesting to think of the different periods of awakening, you know, which is a, is a great way to look. I mean, I, I loved, for, for today, I was reflect, I loved reflecting on my own childhood awakenings, you know, or you could reflect on when were you awakened as a teenager, or in your 20s, or whatever, or, or later, you know, and, and what, and, and I think you're right that, uh, really, that, I mean, in, Maybe to repeat the question that, or the comment really, that, that you're noticing parallels in what those awakening processes are like now when you're choosing that awakening process more consciously as opposed to the awakening process which came out of a, a shattering event, the, the death of a spouse. You know, and, but, and yet you're seeing, okay, there's some parallels. And that's partly what I wanted to communicate with the talk, really, is that we can recognize whatever period of awakening we're in, we can recognize some of these features, that there's, there the calling gets stronger, if you want to, want to use that language, that there, we still have to deal with the habitual conditioning. It's still there. You know, we have to work with that, that it's in ourselves, it's coming at us from others, that there's a certain amount of difficulty, struggle, even suffering, is part of the process of coming into a new identity. You know, and that there, and that, and yet there is this process where something else emerges, that in, in some sense lets us be more full in the world. The Buddha had his awakening process, and he eventually came back and taught for forty-five years. He re-entered the world. <coughs> so there's that. You know, we can talk about it in d- using different language, but there's the calling, there's the moving forth into this new phase. There's challenge, the challenges, the suffering, the struggle, there's the periods of insight and awakening, and then there's somehow the integration or the return to our ordinary lives. Please, it was Laura, right? Was it Laura? Lisa. Oh, Lisa, I'm sorry. So this will be, I think, the last one. Yeah. Well, actually, we're talking, and you mentioned, you know, we talked about the other voices and awakening to the awareness of that which is you know, so much larger. I had it's kind of like slippage where I was wondering if perhaps that which is larger somehow doesn't delight in seeing the voices in kind of looking from the other direction. Mm-hmm. Seeing now that the gate is open, the door is open and, and the view is in both directions. Yeah. Perhaps that which is so much greater somehow holds all the voices yeah. in a beautiful way. Oh. So it's very sweet. I'll repeat that. Um, that there's, uh, Lisa made the comment that uh, might we also take the perspective of, as it were, the greater, which we could interpret in different ways, could be the greater being that one is, you know, further on, let's say, in the process, or we could could see it more metaphysically, perhaps. And doesn't the what is greater somehow take some delight in the earlier process and the presence of all the different voices, even some of them 
leading to suffering. You know, that there's, is that, am I getting that right? And that there's something very interesting in that. It's the way that we can maybe look back on earlier parts of my lives and say, boy, that was a rough period of being a teenager. <laughs> but I wouldn't be who I am without that. You know, and I can see that kind of conditioning where I can see it's really that, uh, you know, it's often said that the, uh, the light comes through the holes in one's being, through, through the, sometimes the wounded territory even. You know, and you can, one can appreciate the, the whole journey uh, when one is safely <laughs> in some, some place of greater integration and awakening. You know, it's like, uh, it's like I, I'm just remembering what, what was sometimes said uh, when pollsters asked Americans about their experience, their mystical experiences. And it turns out that close to 50% of people in the U.S. report uh, having had mystical experiences. And most of them never talk about them to anyone, number one. And most of them actually say, I wouldn't want that to happen again. <laughs> it was too hard. You know, something in that was too hard. Uh, or it was connected with a process that was really hard. So it's interesting. But um, I think there's something quite beautiful on, uh, on, on just, it's really, we might say, it's appreciating the journey. It's appreciating the journey that we've had, which, which is um, sometimes quite big because the journey has had often a lot of um, um, suffering, basically. Suffering, sadness, despair, loss, and so forth. And it's really, I, I think ultimately what you're pointing to is really um, an affirmation of the whole journey. If, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems, maybe I'll end with this. I was just thinking of, um, you know, I was thinking of a person who was, who's been a teacher to me named uh, Houston Smith. Some of you know him. He's a well-known person. And he, he's been a teacher and mentor. He's about 92 now. And he has not been so well physically the last few years, spiritually and emotionally, uh, quite good. And, you know, he's been, for those who don't know him, he's written some of the, uh, the best books on the kind of the spiritual essence of the different world traditions. Wrote a book called, uh, I think, the World's, the World's Religions is one of his books, and quite a few other books. And there's something that um, I felt from him, this is my take on it, in his last years is that he has a lot of space around his own physical deterioration. And again, I may be interpreting or reading into it, but my sense was that there was a lot of this too is part of this whole process. And I affirm with uh, my whole heart and my whole being the whole process that goes ultimately to death and that has these challenging aspects. Of course, his, his spirit is right there. And there's this kind of, that's, that's my sense of, of being with him, that, that, that he was, there's not saying, oh, I wish this wasn't happening. It's more like, oh, there's space, there's equanimity, there's wisdom. This too is part of the process and can have that um, um, 
large awareness, what what you were calling the greater, seems to be there with everything. So let's just sit now uh, to finish. And I'll invite you, if there's um, some way that the talk and the theme was helpful or energizing or inspiring, let that be with you. And let it also invite any intentions which come out of this morning. We'll just sit with those for a minute or two. So we close by remembering that we come here, we practice for very much for ourselves and the emergence of that authentic awakened voice, but also very much that everything is simultaneously for others, for their benefit, for their freedom, for their own awakening. Thank you for your